Corporate CPR, where we breathe life back into your organization, projects, and processes, giving you insights to recovery and avoiding corporate mortality events. Today, we'll be talking about what it means to have a fearless culture, and joining us to contribute to the conversation is Gustavo Rossetti. Welcome, Gustavo. Hi, how are you? Glad to be here. Very excited about the conversation. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Well, can you share a little bit with the audience about your background? Absolutely. Like a uh, long story short, uh, <laughs> I've been working like uh, over three decades in marketing and innovation. At some point, I realized that companies don't like ideas, but what they like is a conducive culture. So in the past few years, uh, I've been working my consulting firm, Fearless Culture, helping organizations build the right culture so their employees can do their best work. Oh, that's fantastic. So tell us what it means, I guess, to have a fearless culture. Let's start there. Absolutely. I mean, fearless, uh, the most important thing is because sometimes people get confused. It's not the absence of fear because fear is a basic human emotion. It's like a traffic light. No, It's something that alerts us that something is going to go wrong. There's something might happen. There's danger around the corner. So we need fear. The problem is when fear, it's not a signal, but a barrier. It gets in the way and basically doesn't allow us to make the right choices. So being fearless, it's about a, a being courageous, about making decisions, about taking challenges despite of our fears. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. And so you, you, it, I, I assume, um, feel like that the culture can be sort of architected or influenced, and that you can build this culture. Um, and and we know cultures are are really difficult to. Um, influence and change. So we'd like to hear a little bit about, you know, how, how one goes about even kind of architecting cultures within their organization. Absolutely. One thing that we help our clients with, and also we train consultants to use our frameworks is to design culture. So what does it mean to design culture? And actually can culture be designed? Many people say, well, it can't. I think that we need to start by a, a Discriminating what it means, design doesn't mean control. You cannot manage, you cannot control your culture, but you can define certain parameters within which people are going to operate and do whatever they want. Because in the end, people are going to do what they want. <laughs> mm -hmm. So design, the same that you apply design to user-centric and, and user experience or design, packaging design or product design, it's about understanding what does your user need. So in this case, the user is the employees, the user could be the HR department, the user could be a management team, the user could be the CEO of the company. So we need to keep into consideration all the expectations and needs of the different segments mm. to design what the right culture is all about. I like to use the analogy of a city. So when you decide how a city is gonna operate, the major sets certain rules and guidance. Now, for example, what's the maximum speed allowed? Is this street going to be a one or two way street and so on and so forth. But then people decide how they operate within those constraints. People decide if they want to drive a car or bike or walk and which music they're listening to. So that combination be between sending, uh, setting sorry, some guidelines and, and, and operation principles that bring us together, but then providing people with freedom, that's what we use to design the culture of a company or the culture of a team. Mm. So one of the things that I've um, 
I've actually personally witnessed is like where, you know, a new leader takes over an organization and the organization has a pretty toxic culture. So do you have insights on like how to, like, it seems really hard to change the way, you know, people are doing things, especially if some of the people creating the toxicity are at high levels of the organization. Do you have thoughts around that? Absolutely. I think the, the important thing first is to separate what is a culture that's not necessarily good from a toxic one. No? So a, a most, co most company cultures are like families. They have some dysfunctionality and they learn to operate like that because we are human beings. We're never going to be perfect. A culture gets toxic. There was a recent study uh, that released by a group of uh, researchers that they went through all the Glassdoor reviews here in the US, like uh, um, thousands of employee reviews about their, their uh, employers. And they discover certain traits, like for example, when, when there's a no inclusive culture, you know, when you don't feel included from a gender, a race, even a, the not being flexible when it comes to remote work, that's something that usually in the long run becomes a, a sign of a toxic culture. When management are being disrespectful with, with people, not only at a professional, but also most importantly at a personal level, when there's a, a cutthroat behavior that individual goals get in the way and people try to do whatever it takes to reach their goals, even if it, it means like uh, attacking their own colleagues. So uh, there's two things that need to happen uh, to your point. Toxicity needs to address, be addressed at the senior leadership level. So basically, what are the behaviors that either we model as leaders or we tolerate? Because sometimes a leader might not be toxic, but doesn't do anything what other people are doing, no? For example, Netflix has a, a rule that a, a no smart assholes allowed. That means that it doesn't matter how smart you are, if you're gonna be a toxic leader, we don't want you here, no? So that's important that what a leader is doing about those people. You know, sometimes we have a great high performers and leaders look into the other side because they don't want to get rid of that person, but the price they pay is really expensive. Mm. On their side, there's the enablers and there's also the people that are bystanders. So if you see something and don't do something about it, you're also contribute to that uh, toxic culture. So once again, it's very important what you model as a leader, what you tolerate or not, and also making sure that you encourage that bystanders and enablers don't help that toxic culture happen, because sometimes it's not just at the top, but also at the core of the company that you see those toxic uh, behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about, you, you mentioned um, that it's important to not tolerate it. Um, and so what does that look like? The, what it looks like is when you do you know, always, we work with the, with the clients in, in two things which are important. Once you define your company purpose, your company values, those things don't matter at all. They're just empty words. If you don't align the behaviors of the company with what you want the company to stand for. So in that sense, we work on identifying what are the behaviors that we reward and the behaviors that we punish. Mm. And those are very important because, for example, I was working with a couple of clients and two different companies, two different businesses, and we uncovered that they were 
rewarding low performers because they were giving people a pass. So people were not doing their work, they were slacking and leaders did nothing about it. So in the end, they were rewarding that kind of behavior. But the paradox is that they were punishing high performers because not only they were doing high performance a great job, but actually they had to take over the work and the task that other team members weren't doing. So, you know, the paradox is like when you do nothing about something, you actually end punishing your best team members. Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. And in the example that I, I witnessed, you know, it was the senior, like, you know, it was a CEO who came in, a new CEO, and it was her, you know, the next person down who was very toxic. And the way they were toxic was that basically would agree with the CEO but then actually wouldn't implement anything they agreed upon and actually, you know, work against, um, uh, you know, what they talked about. Um, and, you know, I, I started thinking and got to the point where you just can't have people like that who are actively working <laughs> against you in an organization. Otherwise you're never going to be successful. Absolutely. That, I think you're bringing a great point, which is consistency and, and when we do, we say one thing and then we do another, that's where the culture goes like uh, wrong, not immediately. Um, for example, we have lots of companies that say, hey, we want to be innovative or we want to be collaborative. And then who they promote? The manager that is the least collaborative, that promotes silos, that doesn't share information. Or they promote the manager that's killing ideas, that's censoring their team, which team feels afraid to experiment or come up with new uh, thinking. Well, so then you're not that. So that consistency that you were bringing up, it's critical not to make sure that the culture doesn't become crazy and at some point it can become toxic. Yeah. So, you know, with, um, how do you approach it then in, in larger organizations when you're, you know, maybe you're talking about 5,000 people or 10,000 people um, and it's established, is the process of kind of influencing the culture to change harder or different? Like how, how does that play out? That's a great point. I think the first part, it's important that we are clear in what the company stands for, no? so codifying the different behaviors as I had said before. So we use a, a tool that's called the Culture Design Canvas. So many people are familiar with Alex Osterwalder's business model canvas that basically helps companies map their business model in one page. So I created like many years ago the, the version of that tool, but for the culture of a company. So we work with companies to try to not only uh, codify and say, hey, this is the culture that we want, but also from time to time to get groups from different uh, 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 departments or areas of the organization to map. How are we doing with that? Not for example, how are we behaving when it comes to psychological safety or feedback? Are we doing the right thing? Are we putting in practice? Do people feel safe to speak up? Do people feel safe to challenge? When there's inconsistency between what the CEO says and what my manager or leader says, how, what do we do? No? So that's a way to basically monitor and sense the culture of the organization. There's also a, a culture a, a tools that we use to monitor 
once a year, twice a year, how the culture is performing across different uh, uh, dimensions to make sure that we can identify those issues and then act on them. What are some of the biggest um, issues or challenges that pop up that co uh, companies face when um, you know, designing their culture and then implementing a design? First, the biggest challenge is that most leaders are not prepared to build culture because they're not, they were never taught, they never learned. So many people come from a business background, so they, they had a lot of knowledge in terms of innovation, business strategy, operations, but culture is a different animal. And it's a more complex animal and they don't have the toolkit and the expertise or the skills to do it. So that's the most important kind of a, a, a challenge and you cannot delegate that into the HR department or the people department. So you can use them, you can support, but the leader needs to play a, a key role and needs to be really involved. The second a, a challenge is the gap between what leaders see and think about their own culture and the reality that people experience on a day-to-day -day behavior. So we usually try to bring to light those gaps because if leaders don't realize that what they think the culture is and what there really is, then they're never gonna be able to design it. So we need to create that level of awareness, which usually is not welcome because there's a lot of resistance and we need to work with that as well. And the third part, I would say that it's a really hard work. So you don't change or evolve your culture overnight. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of efforts and it's not a linear journey. You know, it's a kind of bumpy road. If I always do like to use the analogy. It's like you want to get feeder. Well, you want to get your culture feeder. Well, we can help you understand what your challenges are, what are your strengths, how you can leverage your strengths, what's the journey and the, 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 the exercise plan for you, but then you have to put the work. If you don't show up to the gym, if you don't do the exercise, if you don't change, if you don't do that, then it's gonna be hard. And I think that's the third part that's critical, not like putting or doing the, the, the tough work that requires challenging your own assumptions as a leader, your own behaviors, involving people, being open to questions that people are going to raise that probably you're not going to like and be able to answer them and address their things are never perfect, but you can make them better. Hmm. I'd like to go back for a second. You mentioned um, uh, leaders not understanding, you know, a gap between what the reality is and their, their vision, their um, observations of the reality or their impressions of yeah. the reality. What, well, how do you help close that gap? Yeah, the first thing it, I want to clarify to the audience that you have a lot of leaders that listen to your podcast, so I want them to feel, hey, we're treating them disrespectfully. We don't mean that leaders don't have the skills or not smart to realize that, but there are two things. First, leaders are busy. Second, they interact with a small group within the organization, so they don't get to talk to people that are closer to the clients, to the issues that happen. There's this, a, a, what's called the pyramid of ignorance that said the leaders only access to three or 5% of all the problems affecting the organization. So this is a fact. The point is smart leaders realize that, realize that they're not close to most of the problems and also realize that they need to create a safe culture 
in which people can start raising the problems so they get to them and they can become more aware. So there are two things that we work with the clients. As I mentioned before, one is mapping the culture. So we run different uh, mapping sessions with different groups across the organization, across different departments, across different levels. And that helps like uh, when we consolidate all the results and we put that in front of the, the C-suite, that's a great way of saying, hey, this is the culture that you see because we do that with them as well. And this is how the, the other groups see the culture. So we discuss why is that happening? Is it maybe a messaging thing? Maybe things that you want to convey, it's not getting into the groups, it gets filtered or watered down at the middle management. Or is it that maybe you are so into the future vision where you want to take the company that you don't get to stop and reflect and realize what the company is happening. So that mapping part is the first step. And the second step is we help them build a culture in which people feel safe to speak up. Now building psychological safety so people can raise questions, can bring up issues and leaders can become more aware of what's, of what's going on around. Hmm. No, that makes sense. Um, and, you know, like, what are some, what is the practice, how does that play out then these, these sessions and, and creating that, that trust and, and so that these conversations happen? Is there pre, like, kind of, <laughs> like, how do you lay the groundwork for that? In, in order to build the trust, I think that the first thing that we need to work is building, like, leadership confidence to deal with the things that we don't want to do because leaders are used to listen to good news. I mean, they're always surrounded, think about presence of people in higher up positions. They're always surrounded by people that are gonna filter the news to always tell good news to them because no one wants to say, hey, and that's how human beings operate. So the first thing that we need to make sure is that we create that psychological safety that a belief that the team is safe to speak up, to share, you know, that we're not gonna punish or kill the messenger, uh, that we're gonna do that within the executive team. If we don't have that uh, psychological safety at a higher level, we're not gonna be able to promote it uh, beyond, you know, in different teams. The, one of the practices that's also very important is, for example, the sharing information. You know, the more transparent you are as a leader, the less you hide the more people are gonna uh, uh, trust you. So for example, Airbnb has a practice that when the executive team meets that happens on a weekly basis, all the notes of what happens within that meeting is shared with the whole organization, receptionists, like messing everyone uh, within 24 hours. So not only people can be aware of what's going on with the company, but most importantly, they feel that the leaders are not hiding. So they're not hidden agenda. So that creates that kind of a trust level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit more, I guess, about, you know, the concept of a fearless culture specifically then, um, you know, when I look at a lot of the behaviors um, of individuals, you know, it's amazing how much is driven by fear. Um, you know, one thing that comes to mind, you know, is I go to a lot of women's conferences and, you know, the, lots of talk about pay gaps and not having opportunities. But in my observations, a lot of that's driven by fear because they don't stand up 
and ask for it. You know, they don't walk into their boss's office and say, hey, I feel like I deserve to be paid more or no, you know, no, that's not, an, I'm not going to take that job for that pay. That's not fair or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, that's just one example, but I, I see it across organizations, a lot of, a lot of things driven by fear. So how do you build the fearless culture? How do you help people um, get past that, that uh, instinctual behavior, um, you know, to rise above their fears? Obviously, we, like you said, fear doesn't go away, but it's, it's rising above it and doing things in spite of it. Yeah, that's the point, to rise above the fears. I think that uh, the, the critical principle is, we call it stop waiting for the leader. No? So most of us were trained that, hey, when there's something wrong within the company, we expect for dad or mom to come and fix it for us, no? rather than, okay, what can I do about it? So instead of waiting for your leader to fix your pay, your salary, whatever is harming your position, you need to speak up. Mm -hmm. I know that sometimes it's not easy to speak up, but once again, if you don't do it, you have more to lose than staying silent. Also, you can always find a body or someone that can maybe raise, for example, in Zappos, they had a very interesting practice that's called a, a bubbling up and bubbling down. So it's a, a, a feedback practice in which it's called the voice of the employee, you know, the name, the formal name. So the company selects randomly, they use like a bingo machine and they choose a group of people that are gonna represent the interest of the rest of the organization. So those people talk to different employees, they raise what are the issues, and then they talk to managers that what they call leadership, that's what they call bubble up. And then the leader provides some solutions, feedback, and then that goes bubble down uh, across the organization. So that's a way to promote uh, a safe environment for people to speak up. There's also, I remember working even at an executive level, there's fear. I remember working with a company, they were uh, trying to put together a very innovative uh, service in the financial uh, uh, area. And uh, there was a bank and they were afraid to continue pushing because the CEO of the company was super resistant. So they say, well, if I talk about my part of the project or my part of the project, I'm gonna get fired. So I talked to them and say, hey, what if all of you go together and push back? The CEO is not going to fire five of their key members all at once. It never, I never seen that happen. So they went together like a group and they stand up and say, hey, we don't like what you're saying. You're telling this guy one thing, the other guy one thing. This so they push back and in the end, the, the CEO changed his mind and approve the projects. No, so many times we will. I, I talk the. I talk about being a bystander. We see things happening that are not good, but we don't do anything. When we don't do anything about it, we are actually uh, reinforcing that behavior to continue to to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you find that? How do you create accountability, I guess, for, for the culture to each individual, right? Because ultimately, you know, every employee, as we've talk, been talking about, makes up the culture. And so therefore is kind of accountable to those outcomes. Absolutely. I think that accountability is a, um, uh, an after, it's the aftermath of a freedom, no? So it, 
usually when we talk about accountability, it's something that it's imposed. So people, leaders say, hey, I want to turn my, I want my people to be more accountable. So it feels that the leader is going to put pressure on people. And that doesn't work. I mean, it happens with kids. I mean, I have two now teenagers. If you want to tell them what to do, not only they're not going to do it, but they're actually going to resist because that's human nature. We're we like to be self-governed. We like to have and make our own choices, not to be told by someone else, especially when we're grown-ups, especially when we know how to do our job. So when you build a culture of account, a culture of freedom, then accountability is going to be like a byproduct of that. Now, giving people more freedom to make decisions, to uh, freedom doesn't mean like a free for all. Freedom within certain parameters. Freedom to, for example. Netflix, like many companies, used to have like a very descriptive and prescriptive a, a travel policy that defined how people need to travel, which hotels they could book, a, how much they could spend in food, and all that stuff like usual companies had. At some point, they realized, hey, this is not good because it feels like we don't trust our people. So they replace it by a simple guidance, a, a, a formula that says, do always act in Netflix's best interest. That's it, so the criteria. Um, when I share this with leaders, they are afraid to say, well, if people do, if I do this in my company, people are gonna spend more money and say, well, you know what happened when Netflix implemented it in the long run, it started saving money because people were put with the responsibility of making the right decisions. So they started thinking like smarter adults. Hmm. When you put constraints, and rules that are really restricted, people react, they always try to work around the rule, they're always trying to figure it out, and actually it costs you more money. So when you show people that you trust them, people are gonna pay back. For example, Atlassian, which is a, a multi-billion business a, a software company, original from Australia, where you are now, and, uh, uh, and basically uh, they have a, a principle to show that they trust people, that when you get hired by the company, they offer you a voucher of, let's say, around $5,000 for you to take a vacation before you start working at the company. So the message that they're sending you is, I trust you not, not only on day one, even before day one, you haven't even worked one hour and we trust you. In most companies, it's the other way around. You need to spend six months hard work in order to earn your vacation, in order to earn here in the US, in many companies, if you don't work for at least three months, you don't even get health benefits. No, you need to show that you are trustworthy. When you give people that trust, you trust them first, they're gonna pay with dividends. And that's the, the practice of being fearless. No, So you're not afraid of people, you trust people because they're gonna do the best for you. Mm, yeah. Um, would love to hear about, cause you've mentioned Netflix and um, would love to hear about I guess maybe organizations that you've seen that do this really well. Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned Sapos, Netflix, Airbnb, I think is one of the best organizations. I mean, it became like, it was a startup at some point and now it's a huge gigantic business. And I think that they've been consistent in many aspects, no? talking about being fearless. They at some point revisited their company values and they cut it down and they focus based on people's input. So they involve everyone in the organization to rethink what are our values, what do we stand for, what should those values be. We talked earlier about behaviors that they reward. So at some point they realized 
we want to succeed in the long run. So they choose to prioritize their long-term vision as a company over quick wins. So rather than make money here and there, they say, this is who we want to be. And they were very consistent and very good into keeping that long vision, like guiding the company. And one thing that happened is they, they are like, they act like a host and that's their purpose, right? And, and when the pandemic hit the company, and of course their business went south, like, a, and, and no one was traveling, so who would rent an Airbnb? They have to let go of a lot of people. So one thing that they decided is to act like a good host with their own employees. So the CEO, uh, Brian Chesky, wrote a letter. Uh, basically, he didn't put this on the hands of HR or someone else. He said, hey, guys, we're going through turbulent waters. We have to let go of a lot of people, but we're going to take care of you. So they create a website in which they put all the people that were uh, being let go to help them find a job with a recommendation from not just their manager, but their own CEO. They many people were invested and they gave them all the full benefits to make sure that they could get stock options, even if they haven't uh, reached the one year mark or two year mark, whatever that. So basically, they send the message we care about people. When the business bounced back, people boom came back to the company that now they are growing, they are bigger than they were before the pandemic. So I think that. What's critical, not only which companies are doing what, but we talk about being consistent, we talk about trusting people, we talk about caring people and putting people first. Those are key characteristics of fearless cultures. Mm, yeah, well, and, and then, you know, um, and it's it's tough. It's, it's tough to, as a leader, right, of the organization to not, I guess, have fear and to do those things that show that you do care, like you were talking about the, um, uh, giving, you know, time off right away and health right away and all of these things, because, you know, I'm sure it's fear that drives people like, well, what if they leave? Um, and so that's why, you know, so many of these companies have those policies, you know, um, or the unlimited PTO, right, or open PTO, whichever, yeah, yeah I guess there's a nuance between the two, but, you know, well, mm -hmm. if we do that, are people going to take too much time off and we're going to go out of business? Um, and so, yeah, there is a lot of fear, but, you're right um, in saying that by enacting that, those types of, you know, like going ahead and doing these things does show like we trust in you. Um, and I really like what you said about the, um, you know, do what's best for Netflix when you're booking your, your travel, because that's exactly, you know, you're just saying, hey, be fiduciary, you know, uh, have fiduciary responsibility for our organization because, you know, if we're successful, um, you're successful as well, you know, or yeah. So um, I think that's all, all really um, interesting. Um, have you seen companies um, in your research that have um, just even failed because of their culture? Has their culture brought them down to the point that they're no longer successful or, or um, where they you know, might have been years before. Yeah, many companies, I'm not going to name names, but uh, there are many companies, small, medium, and large that have failed and their business has gone down because of that. Because in the end, culture is like an accelerator of business. So, you know, if your culture is not, it's like an engine. If your culture is working properly, you're going to go as fast as possible. You're going to reach your destination. 
if the agent, the, the engine is not good, it's going to break down and then you're going to not be able to, you're going to get halfway where you're going to reach. Um, I think that the most important thing is the what. You, know, you were talking about the companies that do the right thing. So what do companies do that then get their culture anywhere but where they want to go? It's they manage uh, for the 3%. So there's research that shows, you talk about rules. So only 3% or approximately 3% of people are the ones who have used the system. People that are gonna take advantage of a unlimited vacation, they're gonna try to squeeze a, a, next, a better hotel or whatever, just to get the benefits. So what happens is if you manage for the people that are not trustworthy, you're gonna end punishing the 97% of the people who are trustworthy. Hmm. So that's the, so we see, are you, are you managing for whom? For the people that are grown-ups, the people that are, there's a great example of a company that I was, I'm going to talk about the failure to success. It's a, a called Fabi, not very fancy, French-based company, metallurgical. They basically, it's a manufacturing firm that produces a, a parts for the auto industry for different uh, European car makers. And um, they had many rules that basically the CEO, the new CEO realized at some point that they were sending the wrong message. All the rules were telling him, my people are not trustworthy, they are thieves, uh, they're lazy. So for example, one of the rules was if the employee gloves got damaged when they were operating a machine, they have to go to a manager, get like a coupon, a voucher to say, hey, the, the gloves need replacement. I say, you know, the, the guy is stupid, so he needs me to <laughs> confirm that they're broken. Boom. And then they need to go to a special place, a, a depot in which they, they're going to replace. They have to give the old ones just approval. Hey, they're broken again, and then get the new ones so they can get back to work. And if you talk to the CFO, a, a new pair of gloves costed like around four euros, but the process itself from A to C, from people going through that a bureaucratic process, it cost the company thousands and tens of thousands of euros because people stop working, they stop operating machine, they stop working. So on the one hand, the CEO said, you know what? We're trying to protect the company finance and actually it costs us much more to be fearful than to be fearless and trust people, but also, by changing this rule and getting rid of it, we're gonna uh, eliminate the assumption that we think that people are gonna steal gloves, they're gonna lie, they're just gonna stop working just to get a new pair. <laughs> wow, that's really interesting. Um, and and yeah, I mean, it makes complete sense. I think we see that a lot where, I mean, even beyond culture, it's just how much like um, the bureaucracy and the rules end up costing more than it's saving. Um, all it's re really getting you is maybe peace of mind, but not any sort of um, improvement in your in the bottom line or anything. Um, it would like to just ask quickly, we don't have to go too deep into it, but um, how does how does influencing your culture change when we're talking about um, remote workforces or multinational uh, companies where now you know you have different like lots of different cultures um as part of the you know lots of different country cultures i get <laughs> your personal cultures versus your company culture um how does that play out yeah if you want i can start with the remote aspect of it i mean i just published a book 
a month ago that specifically called a remote, not distant, and it's the result of research and case studies on how companies adapted to the pandemic. So basically, I interview leaders from companies that resist remote work, companies that were forced to, and companies that either were working remotely before the pandemic, so they had a lot of best experiences, best practices, and also companies that were good in terms of adapting. And building on the same conversation we're having, the biggest challenge is that people now want flexibility, right? And flexibility is not just where I'm going to work from, you know, this conversation, working from home, working at the office, but it's more about flexibility of schedule. How can I design my work day around my personal life and not the other way around? So for example, the younger people want to be more in the office because they don't have the right equipment, the right space to work from home. And they also, they are learning. So they want to be close to other people. They want to be mentored. They want to learn by observation. But people with kids or people that are taking care of their family or older people like 50 plus, they prefer to work mostly from home, sometimes in the office. So this requires like a different approach to work which is about, once again, freedom, giving people the freedom to make their choices. And with freedom, you know, flexibility also comes discipline. So if we're gonna give people the freedom to choose where they work from, when they work from, how they want to do the work, we also as a team need to agree on how, how and when are we gonna, for example, a block collaboration time across the day. So at certain hours, we're all available, we're all able to meet, we're all, there, no, we're not vanishing. The, the how are we going to become more disciplined when it comes to a, a documenting things? Because if you are not all in the same place, we need to a, make sure that all the decisions, all the discussions are kept in, a, in an obsessive written document so we can a, a keep track of what are the, the agreements. So that flexibility and discipline is critical. The other element that comes to a, a remote work is rethinking how we work. What things do we want, you know, for example, the office should become more like an offsite, a special, rather than the, the daily place where we meet and it's about mundane tasks, it should be a special place designed for collaboration, for innovation, for building culture, for special moments, rather than just go there to do the work I can do from my laptop. Mm. And that's a critical shift, you know, thinking like the, the office as an offsite, you not know, like special a place, not the day-to-day -day boring place. Yeah, I guess my my perception of the office is that, um, yeah, most most roles, you know, uh, probably don't need to be there every day. But something's lost in like there. There's a lot of roles that can be done completely remotely, but there's something lost in the organic nature of being around other people and you know specifically in our industry where we're implementing projects by being in an office you can overhear other conversations that you wouldn't maybe overhear and realize that might have an impact on your project and it, it's so organic I don't I, I haven't even thought of like been able to think of a way like how do you recreate that um, so I'm, I'm kind of for this like hybrid model, using it for special things like project kickoffs and, you know, or, or company, um, you know, bringing, bringing folks together, you know, to, um, to, 
you know, have a celebration or, um, or something like that, but also like, but just having, you know, maybe it's a day a week, I don't know what it is, but sometime in the office where you're just in the office, because, you know, you have those water cooler conversations, or you have these things that you overhear that actually are very helpful to um, what you're working on. Yeah, I think that uh, what it requires now is more intentionality. I'm going to kind of push back a little bit. Like mm -hmm. the notion of water cooler conversations that people talk a lot about, uh, the reality, and there's a lot of research, not my research, but research from a lot of scientists and experts in the field. The water cooler conversation doesn't necessarily produce the magic that we think it produces. Actually, most water cooler conversations are exclusive because they foment or they, they encourage the meeting after the meeting. They are about certain group members talking about people that are not there there rather than addressing the issues with the people that they need to talk about. Uh, yes, random connections, interacting with people is critical because we're human beings. But I think that leaders need to be more intentional in how they design those experiences, not just bring people and see what happens. You need to create some, for example, go to the, the creator of the go to meeting software. They used to be a full in office company. Now they are hybrid, but mostly remote. And one thing that they do that's really great is because they are saving office, office space. Now they're investing money into building culture. And one of the things that they did is, for example, they promote company events uh, to help the community. You know, for example, people going to food banks or doing things that has nothing to do with work and employees can opt out, in sorry, and out as well. And they meet in a, a neighborhood or whatever, because they even if they don't work together, but they work at the same company and live close to each other. And they do great things for the community on behalf of the company. And that creates a lot of really, really uh, magical space. There are many companies that create spaces for people to interact, either Slack groups about different uh, preferences and organize activities like book clubs or pet clubs, or there's a, a client of mine that, for example, people like go and walk their dogs remotely, but everyone's walking their dogs and cats, whatever, at the same time. And they talk over the phone about life and what's going on. So that creates a huge connection that, that brings that part together. So it's a, a little bit of design without making it too uh, forced, but also what's important is that people can opt in or opt out. So we shouldn't force people to be part of company activities mm -hmm. sometimes because no, and we need to give different options so people can join this because it's more relevant to who they are and then other that are relevant to other uh, people. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned something that's really, really important when you are running projects. You know, if you're leading the project, if you are a project leader or a team leader, what are the key moments in which you need to uh, bring your team together? You know, for example, when you're kick, you mentioned kicking off a project, that's a magical moment. We want to be aligned, not only in terms of the goal, but we want to be emotionally aligned. We want to be, hey, this is great. So those things are important. Key milestones. If the project is derailing, hey, get the people together. So it's a, the point that we need to kind of integrate is not one or the other, is how can we bring together the best of in-person and the best of remote work with a purpose and for each team it's different and for each personality it's different. So it's not a one size fits all solution. Some people require more interaction, some people because of their roles or type of company less. And that's something that leaders need to be more intentional. No? What's the right solution for your team and monitor, experiment with it and see what happens and be able to tweak in one or other uh, direction. Hmm. 
Well, this has been a really um, fascinating conversation. I would love if you kind of gave your top three tips or, or takeaways you want to leave with people. Yeah, absolutely. The one of the things that we discuss is can culture be designed? And the answer is yes. Design doesn't mean control. It means to set up certain parameters for people to thrive. And the culture should be designed with people's input and participation, not just top down. The second thing that we talk in today's hybrid and remote kind of space is about combining this idea of flexibility. You know, we talk a lot about freedom. People want freedom and they actually perform best when they're given that a space in which they feel trusted, they feel that they can make choices because that drives ownership and ownership drives accountability. But freedom requires certain discipline, certain organization. And the other point about culture that's critical, it's not just designed or built by the leaders. You as a team member play a key role. And if there's something that's not working well, speak up and also think, what can you do about it? No, there's always something that within your control, rather than focusing on the things that only are within the leader's control, well, there are tiny little things that you can fix, that you can improve, that's gonna help your team culture become better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, would you like to share the, the name of your books and where folks can get, get those? And maybe if they wanna connect with you, where they can do that? Absolutely, yeah, thank you for that. A quick shout out. The book is called Remote Not Distant and it's available in Barnes and Nobles, Amazon and many other online retailers like Target and Walmart.com, et cetera. And uh, the best way to connect with me, it's in LinkedIn. I'm very active there. I think I'm the only Gustavo Rossetti. So <laughs> if you spell my name, you're gonna find me, but also I have a lot of uh, content there as well. And then you can visit my company website, which is fearlessculture.design. And not only are you gonna learn more about what I do and my company does, but most importantly, there are lots of free articles, over 600 articles and lots of free tools and activities that you can download and you can start playing with them and also work with your team, hopefully to build better fearless cultures. Well, that's great. Thanks so much for your time, Gustavo. We're very happy to have you. My pleasure, Jana. It was really, really exciting. And thank you for the invitation. And I hope your audience appreciate the conversation that we just had. Thank you. And to the audience, until next time, keep your organizations. Now, now, now.